Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. Before we get started with the show, we wanted to open with a plea to support us on Patreon, our crowdfunding page. If you've been enjoying the show or getting any value from it, please consider supporting us on there. If you sign up at patreon.com slash always take notes, you can get a great selection of rewards, including but not limited to a sheaf of successful magazine pitches from myself, Rachel and other co-hosts and friends of the show. And we'd like to give a shout out to one of our most recent Patreons who's just signed up. Rachel, can you give uh, the information? I can. Uh, So we'd like to thank Emily Broadmoor for signing up to Patreon. Emily is writing fiction, particularly popular female fiction with a political setting. She's looking for an agent at the minute, but working with a mentoring program uh, with Faber in Australia. So all the very best of luck with your writing going forward, Emily, and please keep in touch and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and I spoke to book-to-film agent Emily Haywood-Whitlock. We spoke to Emily about how writers sell film rights to their work, the role of streaming services, and how much involvement an author can expect in adaptations. This is another remotely recorded episode, but we think the quality is much better than it has been in the past, and we really hope you enjoy it. Emily, really great to have you on Always Take Notes. Uh, Thanks again for taking the time. We wonder if we could start off, if you could just explain to us and the listeners, what does a book-to-film agent actually do? Okay, well, um, I represent the film and TV rights for books, podcasts, articles, um, any kind of content, really. Um, And I work as a co-agent with publishing agents and publishers and sometimes with authors directly and I um, I basically put a strategy together for a book depending on what it is and who the author is and work with the publishing agent to think about the timing of when to send something out and then hopefully I sell it in a competitive situation and then I negotiate the deal um, and uh, that's that's the kind of uh, in a nutshell, what I do. How long has the um, role existed in general, not just yours? <laughs> in general, well, I would say that it's become more prolific in the past few years because the appetite for IP as um, a jumping off point for developing film and TV has become kind of massive. But mm. I've been doing it for 15, 20 years um, and I remember there were a couple of people that were doing it um, around the same time as me, but now I'd say there's sort of eight to ten book-to-film agents in the UK and many more in America. It's still not that many, right, compared to the number of literary agents and things like that more generally? No, no. I mean, it's quite a specific thing, I think. I mean, I don't know about the other book-to-film agents. I know a few of them, but but... The reason that I love doing it is because I love books and I love film and I love television. Um, And I'm not sure that there are that many people that have a particular kind of love for all of those things. Um, So, no, I don't think there are that many of them. But but then, yeah, if, if I think about the big agencies in America, they probably have, well, I know WME have 12 booked film agents, for example, and CAA probably have a similar number, but here there aren't that many. Mm. And Emily, how did you get into the industry yourself? Um, well, it was quite random um, because I went to drama school, 
came out of drama school, realised that being an actor wasn't the life for me. I was already too neurotic um, and I was desperately looking for something else to do and I always loved reading and fortuitously I got a job working on reception at Fourth Estate. This was about 25 years ago and it was in an old converted piano factory in West London and it was absolutely freezing because at that time there were couriers coming in and out all the time so I had to be there in this really heavy coat and quite often at the end of the day I'd be bright blue and shivering because uh, the door was opening and it was the middle of winter but I got to read three or four books a week and they were publishing things like the Hours and The Diving Bell and the Butterfly and Longitude and all these amazing books. So I actually had quite a nice time down there on my own in the cold. <laughs> and then um, a job came up as an editorial assistant and a rights assistant working for Christopher Potter and Susie Dunlop. Um, and they asked me if I wanted to apply for it. And it just felt like an absolute dream. I, 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 I said, yes, obviously, I would love to apply for it. But I think I was the only one. <laughs> I think I was the only one that they interviewed and um, and I got the job and so I worked for them for two and a half years which was just amazing amazing in so many ways because books were incredible the parties were incredible we used to go and have um, meetings in Hyde Park with ice creams and um, and you know it was just a complete sort of halcyon days of publishing um and i was very very lucky to be part of it were they they were publishers that you're working for they were agents or for those they were publishers they were publishers and then um and then i got um i decided that i would still sort of love the film tv and theater stuff and i ended up getting a job working for pfd for a literary agent there called charles walker who did book to film and represented screenwriters and authors and um so i worked for him for five years and he let me start uh, doing a bit of uh, representing my own clients and doing some book to film deals for him after about a year Um, and then I left there when when it all sort of fell apart and became United Agents and all the agents left and I went to the Knight Hall Agency and I sort of built up um, the book to film stuff when I started there because Rod Hall who'd set that agency up had um, quite a few clients, like uh, he'd worked with Penguin and he'd worked with Profile Books and a few other publishing agents. And I knew quite a lot of people um, from when I'd worked at the publishing company at Fourth Estate. So I reached out to people and started to kind of build up the business um, uh, from there. And it sort of grew and grew and grew and, um, and it was becoming more... Production companies were looking more to IP, yes, I hate that word IP, but they were looking more to books for, um, for, for, for drama and um, wanting the sort of reliability of a, of a ready-made audience that comes with, um, with a book, especially obviously from a, an established author. And so um, I was getting busier and busier, which was lovely. Is that quite common to sort of move up through publishing and then jump across to the book to film side? Or is there a clear pathway as well for the book to film side of Asian Ting? No, I don't think it is. Um, I think most people that start in publishing stay in publishing. I think um, Mm -hmm. I moved around 
a bit, maybe I was a bit of a flippity gibbet. Um, but uh, I think, it, I think as you know, as I said, I had a sort of passion for for both for both the books and for the film and TV side of things, and um, and so it felt really natural to me. But but I think most people sort of stick to their one area of expertise, and I don't know any other book to film agents that have worked in publishing actually. I think most of them have come from a film and TV background and ended up working across the books. Is there a crossover with people who are, are like conventional theatrical or actors agents, you know, people who, who represent actors? I, it's interesting that you came from having been to drama school. And I have a friend who, who went to drama school and is now a casting agent. Or is, yeah. that, is that a similar track or is it a pretty separate world? I think there are some. I mean, so the agency that I work for now is um, primarily actors agents. And many of them were actors. I think that um, many of them, were, you know, were probably very good actors, but didn't ever really make a career of it. Um, I think that as an actor, there's a love for character and story, and um, and I think that's what drew me to to doing what I do. Um, but you know, there, there are some book to film agents that have backgrounds in law, for example. Um, and there's one agent at CAA who was a detective, then trained as a lawyer, then became a book to form agent. So Gosh. I'm not sure that there is one clear path. And it's like, it feels to me that publishing, there is there is a clearer path generally, not that I followed it, but most people study English literature at Oxford or Cambridge and then become a, uh, you know, an editor or, a, or an agent. But I didn't, I didn't follow that path. To talk about your job specifically, you sell rights from imprints such as Serpent's Tale. Do you get to choose which books you think will do best or is it you just sort of inherit a list of a list of books that you have to try and get sell the rights to? No, I'm really lucky in that respect because, um, you know, there are some book to film agents that are part of a bigger agency, like um, there's a book to film agent at Curtis Brown, who's excellent. And there's a book, to, uh, there are two book to film agents at United Agents and they work with the book agents that are um, under the Curtis Brown or United Agents umbrellas, whereas I, I'm not affiliated with one agency or one publishing company. And I think part of the reason that um, I have the relationships with the publishers and the uh, publishing agents that I do is because they know that I choose to work on things that I think have a chance um, to sell, but also that I have a particular taste and a particular way of working so I, I, I am lucky in the sense that I don't have to represent everything and I think that's quite important because I think I would find it quite difficult to go out there and sell things that I didn't feel excited about or that I felt obliged to sell if that makes sense so it's much more about kind of looking at the project as a whole looking at what the market what's happening in the market and and then thinking about whether I feel excited and passionate enough to be able to go out there and sell it. And what is the kind of stuff that you're into? What are your particular interests or areas? Um, I mean, well, I've just, um, this week, I've just uh, closed an auction on a fantastic book called Other People's Clothes. I can't reveal who I did the deal with because we're still finalising the um, finalizing the uh, negotiations. But that's a sort of dark literary it's almost a thriller but there's a sort of dark comedy to it as well and it's incredibly smart and it's got really strong 
women at the heart of it and um that that was preempted by scepter and their publishing agent who who works at pew with patrick walsh is um eleanor Byrne, and, and she's got fantastic taste and that was something that was really exciting to me because the, the writing was brilliant the author Kala Henkel is a fantastic visual artist based in Berlin and there were just so many brilliant elements to that and we had eight offers which was really nice and I just felt so excited talking about that but then on the other end of the scale I worked on the Thursday Murder Club the Richard Osman book which I mm. think has just gone back into number one um, in the Sunday Times bestsellers which is brilliant and that's you know which is obviously hilarious and that has um for I think they uh, they were originally octogenarians but they're now septuagenarians um uh, sort of uh, crime-solving septuagenarians in a luxury old people's home which is very different but the the quality of the writing is amazing and the characters are fantastic it was just brilliant working with Richard and we had 14 offers for that which is I think is the the most I've ever had um and we ended up sending it sending it to um Steven Spielberg's company Amblin and um old Parker who who wrote and directed um the Marigold Hotel uh film is is writing and adapting that and so that was a really fun project to work on um and then a brilliant memoir by Rose Cartwright, who I actually I represent as a screenwriter as well. And that um, is, is about her and her journey with pure OCD, which is a form of OCD where you have intrusive thoughts and images. And it's funny and dark and uh, very, very honest. Um, and that actually that, that was made a couple of years ago by Drama Republic for Channel 4. Um, so I think it's about there being something distinctive about it. Um, I like dark comedy. I like, um, obviously, good writing. Um, you know, a story of The Other People's Clothes, which is the first book I mentioned, is um, about two American girls in Berlin. So it feels very international, whereas Pure feels very British. Um, so I'm kind of open to... Uh, you know, different locations, um, different time periods, although since we've gone into lockdown, lots of production companies are saying they don't want any international locations because people can't travel. Mm-hmm. And they're also saying that they don't want anything that's heavily period because it's too expensive. But then, you know, they, they change their minds and, and things go in cycles. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like obviously good quality writing and strong characters and, and things that I feel will have the uh, have international reach potentially has um the rise of streaming giants changed that um i'm thinking in terms of the international reach of projects and also just the number of places that you can now pitch things to or you know approach them with with a book i think it's completely transformed the industry um it's sort of the level of competition is huge and um the way that stories are told has completely changed because historically if you were dealing with the traditional broadcasters like the bbc itv or channel 4 they have a particular slot and a show has to fit into that slot whether it's an hour or half an hour or 45 minutes or whatever it is and then you've got to kind of work with the ad breaks when you're dealing with Channel 4 and ITV. So they're, they're very sort of formulaic. And so stories 
can become quite form- formulaic as a result of that. Whereas the streaming platforms will tell, uh, will, will create the format for the story. So you might have one episode of a show that's 37 minutes and then the second episode is 43 minutes. And that's just amazing because it just feels that it's just completely opened up the way that stories are told and how um, how adventurous you can be, how bold you can be with storytelling. And then, of course, the other thing is the budgets. Um, and, you know, um, there are tariffs with the traditional broadcasters in the UK, which are pretty limited, although they can do co-productions with uh, international producers or, or now with the SVODs. But, um, but, but generally, the, the, the budgets on Amazon and Netflix and HBO and all of those streaming platforms are much, much greater. But um, the sort of the way that it's also changed the businesses, the way that deals are done. So it used to be that um, the producers would retain lots of the rights and they would be able to exploit them themselves, whereas the streaming platforms expect to take all rights. And that is reflected in the deal for the underlying rights holder, for the, so for the author in, in, in my case. Um, and then the producer has a slightly different deal, it's structured in a different way, um, and they end up benefiting from it, but they don't have as much control as they would have had if they were doing a deal with BBC or Channel 4, for example. So it really has changed the landscape completely, and there are new streaming platforms opening up all the time. And the, the product that you're selling, is it generally a finished product, like a finished book, a finished magazine article? Or do you come in earlier when a, when a nonfiction book is at proposal stage or a novel has only a few chapters? And things? Could you tell us, like, yeah, how does, how does that part work? What stage of the game do you get involved? It really depends on the material. So, um, uh, so the, 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 there's a project about um, the amazing Maltese journalist Daphne Corona Galizia, um, which um, is being written by her son Paul, and I sold that at um, proposal stage. And I think with non-fiction that's much easier because you have a clearer sense of where the story might go if it's based on something that's actually happened, although that story is sort of ongoing. Um, with the Thursday Murder Club, for example, um, obviously that's only just been published, and I think we did the deal about a year ago, but there was a huge publishing deal for that here and in America. Juliet Mushins is the publishing agent on that, and she did a huge deal. And so sort of when that was announced, I timed my submission for film and television with that because it felt like I wanted to build on the momentum Whereas if it's perhaps a much more literary book um, that feels like it's going to get amazing reviews or is going to be nominated for a prize, I might wait till closer to publication because I think then the the interest will build around publication. Um, And then there's something like um, H is for Hawk, um, which was obviously a few years ago, but that was a, a funny process because I was absolutely convinced that there was a film in that when I read the proposal and I sent it out to lots of people and was really excited about it and nobody came back to me it was like tumbleweed and I was just like oh god maybe my radar's really off and then um it got down it got into the when it was published it got into the New York Times bestsellers list and got this incredible review in the New York Times. And suddenly, everybody was like, oh my God, this 
has to be a film. This absolutely has to be a film. And I was like, yes, I've been saying this for a long time. Um, and then we ended up doing a big deal and, um, and, and, and sold the stage rights separately for that, which was, which was nice too. So, so it sort of depends on the, on the, on, on what the story is. Um, but I tend to see the material early and then work with the author and the publishing agent to work out the timing of the submission. And what fraction of stuff that is optioned actually gets made? Oh, well, that's the, <laughs> that's the million-dollar question. So I'm really sad because I've had um, six shows were greenlit for this year and two of those got made, which is pretty amazing given the current world situation. One of them was an animated series, which um, all of the animators were able to do remotely and the other is uh, still shooting now and they've given themselves an extra long shoot and they've had to um, change uh, much of the plot to make sure that the locations are limited and um, that there's less travel and and a smaller cast um, but but that would have yeah there would have been there would have been six six more um, that, that would have shot this year um, it's you know that Production companies develop a lot of projects. Some companies can have between 20 and 30 projects in development at any one time. And um, although there are many more opportunities with the streaming platforms, stuff getting made, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it takes two to three years for a project to be developed before it can go into, it get, it goes into production. That's the average for television and mm. four to five years for film. Um so I would say um, it used to be tiny. It used to be sort of 5 to 10% when I first started. And um, I'd say now maybe 30, 30%. That's of stuff that gets optioned or stuff that gets... That's of stuff sold. that gets optioned okay. that actually goes into, into production. Could you explain to those people who aren't familiar with it what an, how, what an option is, what, a, you know, what greenlit means, just the kind of the real yes, of ba- basic terms of, of yeah, your industry? Yeah, of course. So, um, so when when a book is optioned, the production company takes a an option um, for a limited period of time. So it's normally, let's say, around eighteen months. Some production companies want longer, especially now because of COVID. A lot of companies are asking for twenty four months, um, and they'll pay uh, a, an amount of money for that. And depending on the level of competition that can be anywhere from five thousand pounds to one hundred and fifty thousand pounds, and sometimes more. Um, and so that basically gives them exclusivity for that period of time. So let's work with eighteen months. So they have eighteen months um, in which to develop that project, um, which means that they take it to a writer, get a writer's take on it bearing in mind that most of the sort of more experienced writers are very busy, so that's why they need a kind of longer window of time. They may get a broadcaster on board at that time, um, and um, they develop the project perhaps to a first draft script, and then um, at that point they either get further development from a broadcaster or a broadcaster makes a decision about whether they want to take the show into production, so they want to greenlight the show. And depending on how many episodes um, uh, uh, the broadcaster wants, there'll be a sort of mad frenzy to get those episodes written in time for production to actually start. Um, So in terms of 
how the deal is structured. So the so the the option fee is paid during the option period. If if the option is renewed for another eighteen months, there'll be an additional fee paid, and that first payment, the first option fee, is set against the purchase price. But the second option fee is in addition to the purchase price, and the purchase price is a minimum amount that will be paid on the first day of shooting of the programme. And then, this is all very technical, <laughs> and then... No, it's fascinating. Um, oh, okay, good. Um, then, then normally uh, you would negotiate an episodic royalty. So, so for example, if the purchase price was a uh, £100,000 payable on the first day of principal photography, and the episodic royalty was £25,000, um, the all and and there were eight episodes. The hundred thousand pounds would be offset against four episodes, and then there would be an additional hundred thousand um, pounds to take it up to eight episodes. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Ish. <laughs> In terms of your how you get paid, you get a cut of each of those instalments. Yes, exactly. So I take commission from the overall deal, and um, and then also. Is it 15%? No, it's not. It's only 10%. Because literary agents are on 15, right? Yeah, so because of because of my relationship with the literary agent, they normally have an agreement with their authors that film and TV is 20%, so it's normally split 10-10. I see. So that's how it normally normally works. Um, so, yeah, so, so I would take commission from the overall deal and then um, the author would normally get a share of back end which is you know from secondary exploitation of the program or um if it was set up at an, a streaming platform there would be bonuses and various other elements that um the author would benefit from because the deals don't work in the same way with the streaming platforms because they take all rights it's really good to get into this stuff actually because it's a it's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it kind of interferes yeah. with writing lives i mean often the idea of, of getting your book optioned or sold is the sort of great white hope of, of a lot of writers, you know, the thing that will finally deliver them from grinding poverty. Um, but I mean, how, how much are the amounts of money, like, you know, for, and be as specific or as general as you want, but say at the different tiers, say you get something made into a two-parter for Channel 4 versus, you know, a seven-season thingamajig for, for Netflix, like, what, what are the sums of money <laughs> the official term is a thingy magic. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. Novel, novelist makes movies like tell us as much of the kind of gory details as you as you can or are comfortable doing. Okay, um, well, let's think about this without revealing any confidential details. <laughs> if you're doing, if you're doing a two, say, say it's a sort of prestigious two-parter for the BBC. Um, now, the BBC, forgive me, BBC, but they are notoriously stingy on option fees so you're not going to get anything like you would if Netflix were going to buy it so we're talking probably maximum £25,000 but probably a lot less than that for the option fee. For the purchase price I would say somewhere between um, £50,000 and £100,000 um, for, for two, two times one hour sort of prestigious um uh sort of yeah uh, it's not really a mini series but uh, yeah a two-parter if um i think you've had recent deals where um i sold the rights to 
Netflix, um, and they paid they paid an option fee of seventy five thousand dollars in a competitive situation. Um, now Netflix um, would pay an on so they pay a purchase price of say somewhere between three hundred and five hundred thousand dollars, and that would be payable on the first day of principal photography. And then they would pay an ongoing royalty throughout the series. Then there would be all sorts of other payments that would kick in for... Um, so the American model, very often the author is an executive producer. So they get additional fees for that, which is normally around $5,000 per episode, even if they're not providing the executive producer's services. Um the American model is much more open to, to having the author sort of as part of the process, which which I think a lot of authors like. Um, and then the streaming platforms will very often pay bonus payments. So so if the first series is commissioned, there may be a bonus payment of somewhere between twenty five and fifty thousand dollars, and then there, that can be um, that can also be applied for sort of second and third series. So. Um, the more series are commissioned, obviously, the, the, the better off the author will be. But I think that, you know, the great, you, you said about the, the sort of it being like the holy grail for, for an author and it's going to be their opportunity to retire. I, I think about um, the way that it feeds back into book sales as well. So if, if I think about um, Apple Tree Yard and Normal People as sort of um, recent examples of books that have been published, have done well, but then when the TV series was released, they both went back into the top 10. So the book sales really benefited from the TV series. And I think it used to be um, that if a, a movie was made, then they would the, the author would really benefit from book sales. But if TV was made, it was less, less so. But I think that balance has shifted now, definitely, to, to television really, really feeding into book sales much, much more. You mentioned um, writers in America being brought onto projects as executive producers, and I know that Sally Rooney was involved in Normal People um, in adapting the script. Yeah. How much involvement in general do you think writers should should have in their in the adaptation of their own work? Well, quite a lot of authors that I work with are involved um, in the adaptation, um, and I think that it really depends on the author and the material. Uh, and the producer, but I think um, I think most authors would like to be involved as consultants. Um, but but there are I have one example where an author um, sold the rights to her book, and the producer desperately tried to find a writer that was able to emulate her voice and tone, and she's got a very distinctive voice and in the end they came back to her and she hadn't written um, the script before uh, but they said to her look we'll support you through this process would you be open to it and she's absolutely loved it and and it's been an amazing experience for her um, and then um, another author who has her series set up at Netflix has written six out of eight episodes that, that's one of the shows that was greenlit this year and ended up getting, being put back to next year um so I think 10-15 years ago production companies were very anti-authors uh adapting their own work but now I think 
with writers' rooms, there's always an opportunity for writers to get in and experience and learn from other writers and share ideas and be involved in the storylining. Um, but then I think with other writers, you know, uh, quite a few of them are really keen to be uh, writing screenplays themselves. And then there's that slightly tricky situation sometimes where you have to manage people's expectations where I remember having a conversation with an author recently and she said, well, my um, my friend is adapting her own is her own her own project, so why can't I? And and the producer is really resistant to it. So <laughs> you sort of have to manage each, each situation depending on the author and the producer. Um, but I always have that conversation with the author and the publishing agent before I send the material out to see what their expectations are so that I can be clear with the production companies that are offering on the project. And I think if, if it is somebody that has a very distinctive voice, I think that it's a real benefit to have them as long as they realise. And I think this is the slightly tricky thing is as an author, you're pretty much in control of your destiny. Um, and if, you know, if once you've done a deal with a publishing company, if, unless something goes awfully wrong, the book's going to be published. Whereas in television, there are so many factors involved and um, and there are just no guarantees. And I think that's very hard for an author sometimes because they're just like, well, why is it taking 18 months for the for them to find a screenwriter? And why, um, why doesn't the director want to hear my suggestions about the casting for the lead character? And uh, it, it, why, why aren't Netflix getting back to us? The scripts were delivered six weeks ago. And it, it, there, there are just so many factors involved. And I think that can be quite demoralising for an author who's spent so much time with their baby and, and been in control of that process. What is the, the kind of sellability of, of non-fiction versus fiction? And I was also wondering, how does it work selling the rights, as it were, to, to non-fiction where the story kind of is in the public domain and, and how is ownership determined on, on that side? There is certainly an appetite for non-fiction. I think with the rise of sort of true crime stories becoming really popular and the true true crime podcast, I think about um, uh, some of the sort of Netflix series that um, and some of the podcasts that have then like, uh, is it um, True John? I know. What's it? Dirty uh, John. Dirty John. Dirty John, yeah. exactly. Um, and then I mentioned the Daphne Karuna Galizia uh, project, um, and I think there is there is a real appetite for true stories because I think people um, want that sort of authenticity and and the extra jeopardy that's added by um, something being real and have happened to a real person. Um, but that doesn't. I don't think there's. Um, a, a sort of leaning one one against the other. Um, I think it just depends on on the story and the and the take on that particular story. Um, in terms of the rights, I mean, it depends on whether the family are still alive, whether there are um, you know the, the, the yeah whether there are still people that are connected with the person that the biography may be written about that should be part of. The process um, and whether there's any any ownership in that, but but generally, if a project is in if 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 the um, subject of a book is in the public domain, it is the journalist's or the author's take on it that um, 
that a production company is buying into. So there may be, a, I mean, with some with some production companies, if there are all biographies in the marketplace, they might buy all of them, so they have access to all of them, and nobody else can get access to that material. If if that makes sense, um, but I think it's it's the journalists or the authors take on it that a production company is buying into very often when it's some when it's a biography of somebody that um, is well known and has deceased. How much of your job is sort of wrangling with contracts? Too much. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had a, I wish I had a bit more legal support being really honest because I spend a lot of time um, toing and froing with American lawyers and um, there are you know there are points that just come up all the time and I'm a bit of a stickler to be honest and I, I want to get the best contract that I possibly can but it would be great to have a bit more legal support um but yeah I, I spend a lot of time doing contracts I mean I, I try and balance it out with um the stuff that I really love which is reading and, and um selling material and talking to authors and talking to publishing agents but I do I mean I suppose it's good that I spend a lot of time doing contracts because I'm doing a lot of deals but um but it does it can can weigh you down a little bit um the piles of paper on my desk and the emails with the lawyers in America uh, can be a bit worrying sometimes. I've been watching, uh, for the sake of my French, Call My Agent, which I'm, I'm sure oh, yeah. you're familiar with, um, yeah, which is, is fascinating. But how much, you know, of your time is spent kind of dealing with emotional crises on various sides of the fence <laughs> and, and that that kind of sort of pe- people management that is so <laughs> so wonderfully, perhaps slightly exaggerated, but presented in, in that show? that's a sort of ongoing aspect of my job and, and something that I kind of quite love in a, in a strange way. Um, you know, I have a, a client who um, is sort of struggling emotionally, not just because of COVID, but various issues that are ongoing and that's um, inhibiting her writing process. So we're talking on a regular basis and I'm helping her as much as I can through that and helping her to sort of see the light and to sort of focus on the ideas that she can work on at the moment and 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 to take the pressure off a little bit and then um you know that there are situations where I mean it doesn't happen very often but an author may sell the rights to uh, a, a production company and this does happen actually where a production company will say all the right things um they'll say that that include the author and they'll say that they'll um go to particular writers and they'll say that they'll kind of develop it in a particular format and then everything changes because that's the process of development and so an author might suddenly say well hang on a minute that wasn't what we agreed at the beginning and we have to kind of work through that process with the producer and um and that can be tough because you know we have a deal and they have a limited period of time to develop the project and so there's lots of management uh sort of um management of relationships i would say um that i'm involved in um i quite i quite enjoy that aspect of the job presumably some of the other relationships you have to manage are with people at production companies and at netflix and stuff you know to see what they're looking for and what's the sort of demand yeah, exactly. So um, 
I have regular catch-ups, which now are on Zoom, um, with the sort of um, development people within production companies and the commissioning execs at the broadcasters, and they'll tell me what their sort of remit is, and obviously that's changed with COVID, as I mentioned, about the... um, international travel and period um, stuff or, or or it'll be depending on what they have on their slate so if they've already got a graphic novel that they're adapting into live action or if they've already got a medical drama or they've already got a sort of intimate chamber piece they may not want another one or it might be that um, a production company is working with a particular writer or director or actor and they want to develop a project in one area and they might call me and say, have you got anything um, set in the 50s in Soho um, about jazz? And I'll be like, well, I'm not sure if I've got, but I've got this. And they'll be like, oh, okay, well, we'll have a look at that and we'll talk to so-and-so about it. And that's quite fun because it feels like you're, there's a little bit sort of of curation that goes into it, which I I kind of like. Um, And, you know, I have to keep in touch with these people regularly and maintain my relationships with them in the same way that a publishing agent would do with editors within a publishing company um and that you know I I feel like I've got pretty good relationships with them and and what's also interesting is, is, is that there are lots of film and television scouts now um and there seem to be more and more year on year and they are employed by the production companies to talk to publishers, to talk to editors, to scout around for podcasts and articles. And then they um, they sort of produce reports for the for the production companies and kind of steer them in the direction of the sort of projects that they might be looking for, depending on subject matter, taste, and what else they have on their slate. So I talk to all the scouts quite a lot as well. Um, and we, I feel like we, we help each other out um sort of building up um momentum behind projects and they have particular authors that they like and um and so there's a sort of added layer to um who i'm communicating with um and they're connected with the production companies and returning to the financial side um do you because of the sort of huge sums that these these projects cost and so forth is there the possibility as a book to film agent to to make a lot more money than a conventional literary agent would or is it not as simple as that I don't think it's as simple as that because I think um, it comes back to that thing of there being so many factors involved in actually getting a film or TV series made and although I know a book can be commissioned and it can be seven years before an author delivers it, um, a a film particularly can fall apart at any stage. I mean I I think, uh, sadly, I think film is just so hard now and I think the models moving over to the streaming platforms and, and cinema is going to be, well, it's already beginning to be released in a different way. I think, you know, that there are there are ways of being hugely successful and I'm not doing too badly, but I think, um, yeah, it's 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 a house of cards in 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 some ways, and um, it can sort of fall apart at any point. And because of the way that the deals work, in terms, of, you know, the the main payment is only made on the first day of principal photography. So the so the the thing has to be made before everybody makes 
that bigger chunk of money. There's lots of money in between, but it's that it's it's the the, the holy grail is the first day of principal photography, basically. So you have to get to that point for everybody to to really benefit. Wonder whether you um or whether the rise of gaming has sort of impacted your job at all. I read something recently about the sort of crazy amounts of money involved in something like Roblox, for example. Do you think there will be an increase in optioning books or things, you know, nonfiction into into storylines for games? Well, I think um, what most of the studios do um, is they'll, if, if you're doing a deal with, say, Fox or Sony or Paramount or um, Universal, they'll expect those rights to be included in any deal. They'll also expect, like, theme park rights to be included in any deal, merchandising rights to be included in any deal. It, I haven't had the experience of a gaming company directly coming to me to acquire the rights but I think as part of the sort of exploitation of um, IP within a studio certainly they're always thinking about uh, ways of spinning off into gaming and merchandising and theme parks and all those sorts of things um, but I do think that, I do think it's really interesting and it feels like that is a growing market so that may well change I just haven't had a direct approach as yet. So we're coming towards the end of our time, so maybe just a, a couple more questions. But where do you see this whole area, this whole industry going forward? I was particularly interested to read the coverage about the late, the new season of The Crown and the suggestion that its its budget is is so big it's more than the, the Queen's sovereign grant. And I was wondering how <laughs> how will you know? It's crazy. It's like a hundred million versus eighty two million. Um, but but like how in that environment will traditional broadcasters will they will they attempt to compete on lavishness and on cost, or is there going to be some kind of split? And is the streaming boom sustainable? Do you think, or is there going to be some kind of bust? Um, I mean, we've talk, been talking about it being that, that there being some kind of bust for a few years and it still hasn't happened and more and more streaming platforms seem to be emerging. So I'm not sure that that will be the case. But what I think will happen and is already beginning to happen is that there'll be much more sort of cross fertilization between, say, a Nordic streaming platform and the BBC um, and actually this project that I have um, which is in production at the moment is a is a co-production I think there are seven parties involved but but there is an audio streaming platform in channel four um, and I think that everybody will be looking at ways that they can work together and I think people will try to be looking at what they can do within their local territory I think that you know that that um, Netflix particularly talk about local stories with global appeal and I think that's also something that um that everybody's thinking about is just how do we um utilize other markets and 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 work there'll be more collaboration well I'm hope I'm hopeful that there'll be more collaboration but um yeah I've, I'm just in the process of doing a deal for a show with CBBC and they're talking to Netflix about how they're gonna work together on it so that they can have a bigger budget because it's an international show so I think that um, people are being, I, I mean, it, what I have been really, um, uh, what's made me feel quite joyful during COVID and lockdown is how creative people have been and um, how people have thought outside the box. And, um, and I think people will continue to do that. I can't, 
imagine that there are going to be as many shows at the budget level as the crown i don't think that's sustainable i think that's you know there are a few aren't there but, but that's quite unique but i think generally people will be working together more and more as much as they can um to help get them help get things made and help keep things moving we keep things keep moving in terms of those co-productions i'm thinking of the bbc and netflix on Wardship down or the bbc and hbo on his dark materials is it is the way it works that um you know the bbc would get british distribution rights and the first distribution rights in the uk and then netflix would take the global rights and put it on streaming you know a month later yeah there are different models for each show so it really depends but yes it's it's that sort of model that they'll have a the bbc will have a limited window and then netflix will um take it on from there um so it depends on what the show is and and um and who the streamer is but 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 it but it but, but it's that sort of model that they're working with yes well emily we should we should wrap this up because we're up against our time limit but thank you for being a fascinating guest i feel i've learned a great deal about Mm -hmm. um something i I knew a little bit but i I feel much better educated now um i think a lot of our listeners will also draw a great deal from this so wishing you all the best with your projects going forward and hope you hope you get through that pile of contracts (laughs) thank you very much lovely to talk to you thank you It's us again. Simon, how did you find our interview with Emily? I really enjoyed it, actually. I've been wanting to get a book-to-film agent on the show for a long time. It's one of the areas of the literary landscape that um, we haven't had so far. And it's clearly an area that a lot of writers kind of dream or uh, aspire to have their work sold. And it sits like a sort of shining thing on the horizon that a lot of people don't really understand how selling film rights and that kind of thing works. So again, really good to to lift the lid and find out some of the some of the mechanics. And also, you know, I think very admirably she answered our tricky questions about money and all that kind of thing. What about you, Rachel? Yeah, she really broke down the different stages and um, you know, green lighting, options, photography and all of that stuff, which was was really insightful and interesting. It was a bit of a throwback for me because my first ever job was in a books to film department of a literary agency. So it was um I knew a little bit about it from that, but I was only a lowly intern stuffing envelopes then. So <laughs> you were saying at that point that like at, you were sort of surprised that it was much more about kind of contracts and stuff like that rather than creative development, right? Yeah, but Emily seems to be sort of very creatively involved in it. I don't know whether that comes from not being in house, yeah. whether she gets to sort of pick and choose projects that she thinks will sell better rather than inheriting a list that she has to go away and sort of do her best with yeah yeah. um but yeah some of the books to film agents i've spoken to have said that it's a lot of sort of drafting contracts and the legality of it all and not so much of the fun stuff a lot of lot of wrangling yeah do you think people still stuff envelopes early in their careers has that all been been superseded by technology no i think they i think there's still a lot of um envelope stuffing because people really like physical physical copies of things um that is true so i can't imagine that's going away anytime soon um although i am getting a lot more pdfs of books which (sighs) it's not it's not really the same is it anyway rachel what what have you been up to i have been doing my job as usual editing some interesting pieces and and doing my course so basically the same as usual how is the how is your magnum opus on blisters coming along uh god I, rachel i feel you're not sufficiently excited about this story given given how groundbreaking it is as a as a piece of journalism <laughs> um i am right yeah i'm writing the 
the next draft of this. I actually I interviewed the man who invented Compede on Friday. So the uh, the well-known blister product. So I spoke with him. Very interesting. Um, he was uh, originally working on incontinence products and then thought that there could be an opportunity to apply the same technology to blisters. So that's, that's very good. Um, and then I think my big contact tracing story is running next week which is good I'm trying to get some some pictures away I and mean, i think we, we were talking um off air the other day about how like in lockdown it, it kind of is just like work all the time is the it's the only thing to do right which is which is actually okay in, in some ways mm. but you know hopefully this doesn't go on go on for too long and um, what's been going on with your course um so we've moved on to the tv portion of this term so that's exciting i'm reading some scripts this evening and our tutor is called Kate Hall, and she started as a st- script editor or story editor on um, Hollyoaks. So that role, getting an insight into that role is really interesting because it seems pretty relentless and coming up with fresh stuff to happen to these characters is, is no mean feat. So um, yeah, I've been really enjoying it and I have to write a learning journal every week. So an- another excuse to continue watching lots of television and film i'm focusing on exposition have you have, <laughs> have you claimed local knowledge of hollyoaks no i, I haven't no. Your... i didn't um i didn't really watch soaps growing up but um it's set in in rachel country no in cheshire manchester kind of area yeah i think so yeah i do remember that i was in i was in warrington in cheshire for a story for gq some years ago and i went to this bar to get a meal and someone like told me uh, you know the cast of Hollyoaks are sometimes seen there as though this was sort of extraordinary celeb sighting so you know sounds sounds interesting but that is an interesting point on like yeah how do you kind of keep what do they do do they bring in new characters do they kill them off like what's the way what's the way they do it I think a bit of that I mean she gave an example from the beginning of her career she said actually sometimes not watching these shows gives you a fresh perspective so there was a character who had amazing hair and she was in a sort of abusive relationship. And she went in and was like, well, obviously we should cut this character's hair off as part of, like, as part of that relationship. And, you know, she'll lose the thing that she's known for. Um, and everyone was like, we can't possibly do that. <laughs> and she's like, we've got to, we're going to do it. <laughs> I think we should get like a soap script, ed, script person on the show actually at some point as well. I think that would be, that would be really interesting. I agree. Um, yeah. Anyway, we are, let's, let's um, not detain our listeners too long, but this has been Always Take Notes hosted by me, Simon Acom. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Katie Lee. Our graphic design is by James Edgar and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Patreon at Always Take Notes, and if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.